I am Dr. Janice Johnson, and you're listening to Gospel Tangent. It's the best source for Mormon history, science, and theology. I'm Rick Bennett. I'm excited to have Dr. Janice Johnson on the show. You know, she's a big Mountain Meadows massacre expert, and she has a brand new book called Convicting the Mormons Out Here. So this isn't her first book with the Mountain Meadows Massacre. She was actually a co-editor on the collected legal papers, these two big red books here, <laughs> um, that she did with Rick Turley and LeGene Carruth. So um, in we're going to find out more about uh, convicting the Mormons. It's kind of an outsider perspective on the Mountain Meadows Massacre. So you won't want to miss this conversation. Check it out. Welcome to Gospel Tangents. I'm excited to have an amazing author. You know, I know that Rick Turley and Barbara Jones and Brown are getting all the air, but you have been a Mountain Meadows scholar for a long time. Tell us who you are and what the name of your book is. Um, my name is uh, Janice Johnson. I am... Um, my book is Convicting the Mormons, the Mountain... Go ahead and show it to the camera. Okay. Uh, Convicting the Mormons, the Mountain Meadow Ma Meadows Massacre in American Culture. Um, I also have worked on Mountain Meadows for a long time. I think Rick beats us all, but um, Rick Turley beats us yeah, all. Yeah, not me. But, <laughs> um, but I started working on Mountain Meadows in 2001 wow. as a research assistant for the late Ron Walker. Okay. And the first book. The first book. Okay. Yeah. So I was a research assistant on the first book. I they, guess we should say what the name of that book is. Um, Massacre at Mountain Meadows. Right. Um, they thought that the, because they had three, uh, historians and a whole department of people working on it, they thought that they would wrap it up in about, um, uh, six months, eight months, <laughs> you know, it just took eight years. Um, but, and then after I worked for a year on Mount Meadows, and then went to divinity school. Uh -huh. And um, when I came back, I wasn't quite ready to start a PhD right up. I needed a little bit of a break and um, ended up working for Rick Turley again, this time to work on the trials particularly. And then I became the general editor of the Mountain Meadows Massacre legal papers. Okay, um, are those the red books? The Red Books, yeah. and published by the University of Oklahoma Press in 2017, and then um, and then I went. I, we were still kind of finishing that up when I went back to school to get my PhD, um, and but knew that I'd been working on for Mountain, Mountain Meadows for so long that this really needed to be my dissertation. That it would be silly for me oh, to do okay. something different. And so this is my dissertation book. I finished my dissertation back in 2014, um, graduated with my PhD in 2015, but um, taught at BYU-Idaho and was teaching a lot um, and then started working at the Maxwell Institute at BYU, but was also was working on this Book of Mormon project, which was taking up all of my time. Um, but the pandemic gave me some time to slow down and say, yeah, I still think this is really valuable. And if this is going to become a book, it needs to become a book now. And okay. so, um, so I wrote up a proposal and sent it out to a number of 
presses, um, three different presses actually, and decided to go with the University of North Carolina Press. Oh, nice. And they've been really great to work with. So I've, I've really enjoyed working with them. Well, cool. So this book is your PhD dissertation. This is my basically. dissertation. Yeah, uh, it's it's morphed a little since then. It has, <laughs> um, as as my editor would tell me, um, not everyone's brains jump back and forth through history, and so it helps to kind of uh, uh, adding a chronology to it. So there's a little more of a narrative. It's different than most uh, all the Mountain Meadows books that have been done. Yeah, a different kind of book. Um, but I still wanted to kind of provide a narrative so that there was a story to follow. Right. Um, so I wouldn't lose people. So it was still accessible to a, a wide range of people. It was very accessible, I have to say. Good. I will say I read, because I your book, well, let me ask you this. <laughs> I got so many questions. <laughs> <laughs> your book came out about the same time as Rick and Barbara's book same came day. out. Same day. Same day. Yes. Oh, same day. Is was that on purpose or was that just Well, apparently I think that my date was announced earlier and I think Rick told me or Barbara told me that Oxford went to them and said, When's that other Mountain Meadows book coming out? We should do it at the, on the same day. Oh really? So, so they I didn't I didn't I thought it was just coincidental, but apparently they Planned it if I if I understood that. So is correctly. there a synergy going on here? Or do you yeah, think that, well, and it I feels think like that Rick and Barbara's book is sucking out all the publicity. Well, I um I think uh people have been waiting for that book for a long time. <laughs> yeah, it's, fifteen years or something. It's uh it's been a really long time. Um, I thought that book was going to be way over and done with by the time that my book came out, but I've also taken time with my book, so I I can't. You know, I can't. I can't say anything about that, but um, but I think it does. I think the books work really well together. We don't see everything exactly the same, but we're also telling different parts of the story. Right. And um, so I think that they're very symbiotic. That um, they help kind of provide this historiographical moment, um, looking at Mountain Meadows, and um, so I I believe that they go together really really nicely. They work together well. Now, I posted yesterday that I we were I was going to interview you today, uh-huh. and somebody noticed something on Amazon that that was a little strange. I don't think you wrote it, but it does say on the Amazon page, and maybe you can put this in because I I think it's a little bit of a mistake. Um, it says that the Mountain Meadows massacre was led by John D. Lee, and one of my audience said, oh, is John D. Lee in charge of it now? And I thought, oh, because the second paragraph t- says that this is more of a non-Mormon look at Mountain Meadows, which which is accurate. But the first paragraph where it said that the massacre was led by John D. Lee, I think gives, or at least it gave this one particular person the wrong impression about what the book is about. Yeah. Well, yeah. And that's, that's probably, I, um, I'm not sure if that came from the publisher from probably came from the publisher, I would assume, but, um, yeah, not, not entirely accurate, but, um, the massacre would not have happened without John D. Lee. So I'm, I'm not particularly, um, I, I, John D. Lee was definitely guilty. Um, (laughs) I think Isaac Haight is probably more guilty and I don't know how you judge these things but they're both definitely very very guilty 
And the massacre on the ground never would have happened without Lee. Right. Um, Lee is is an interesting figure in this book because he is central to it, but he's also not. Right. Um, and, and so we start the narrative with Lee and his execution, but ultimately, even in his first trial, it was never really about him. <laughs> and, um, so that, that becomes a really curious tension that, that weaves through the book. Yeah. Yeah. Well, before we dive in, one of the things I'd like to do is get a little bit more of your educational background. Um, you mentioned Divinity School. I think you attended BYU. Can you walk us through? And I think you're you're a SEC girl, right? Um, no, no. Well, actually, where's Vanderbilt? Is, Va- is, Va- is Vanderbilt in the <laughs> SEC? I was a grad student. I I didn't do sports while I was at Vanderbilt. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, well, and I um, I enjoy sports and enjoy BYU sports a lot. Um, but yeah, in divinity school, I was definitely not focused on um, sporting events. I okay. think I went to one NHL um, hockey game. Oh, the Predators. The Predators while I was there, but I'm not sure I did much other sort, sports ball sorts <laughs> well, of things while not I was known at Vanderbilt. Sports, so. And they weren't particularly good at that point in time either. <laughs> so um, yeah, so the SEC thing was totally lost, totally lost on me. Um, so I was an undergraduate at BYU, um, a political science student. Oh. I just before I was going. Were you there with John DeLynn? He's a political um, science student. Oh, I didn't even know that. Yeah. I don't know. Um, I think I'm a little younger than he yeah, is. I think so. Um, but uh, I just before I was about uh, ready to graduate, like a couple weeks before I was supposed to graduate, I decided that I wanted to do history oh. for graduate school and um, that I wanted to do Mormon history. And... Um, I begged them not to make me graduate because I hadn't taken any history classes as a political science student and needed history prerequisites. You'd if already I was applied for going graduation, to do, though? Um, yeah. Oh, it's your fault. <laughs> it, was, it was my fault, but um, they were surprisingly flexible with oh, me good. and enabled me to stay as an undergraduate for a little longer so I could start taking take these history prerequisite classes I needed. And then I just kind of moved into the history program and started taking some graduate classes before I was officially accepted into the uh, history program at BYU. They had a master's uh, program at that okay. point. And then, um, and then I moved I went to Vanderbilt. I went to Divinity School. So let me back up. Yeah. So you got your bachelor's in political science. Master's in American history. Both from BYU. Both from BYU. And then I went to Vanderbilt for Divinity School, um, a master's of theological studies. But I mostly did American religious history, but also took scripture classes and took Bible and Christian history classes. And, um, and then came back and worked for... Uh, the church history department um, for the LDS church for about seven years on Mountain Meadows. Oh, wow. Um, and you as, were just pigeonholed into this. <laughs> <laughs> and as this, as this, a few, a few years into the process, I knew uh, I needed to do something. I needed to do Mountain Meadows for my dissertation. <laughs> I, I had early ideas about 
American theological conceptions of Eve as as being um, oh. and and I I hope I will write that book at some point. But um, yeah, I I knew way too much about Mountain Meadows to to leave to start over with something completely new for for a dissertation, and so I um, when I could see the light at the end of the tunnel on the legal papers, um, I uh, started applying. I because I had two master's degrees, I didn't want to start over somewhere. Um, and have to do, uh, do coursework again. And so I started looking at the British system and it, oh. it's much more adaptable to what you've already done. Okay. Um, and so I ended up um, at the University of Leicester in England and they have a great American studies program there. It's, it's the second, I think, in, in the UK. And... Um, and they were really happy to have me and and with all of my experience. I'm amazed and, at how many Americans get British degrees. You, yeah. Dan McClellan, Daniel Stone. It's amazing. It's well, and it's a different kind of system um, because it's very personalized and it's very focused on on what you want to do. And they let you be that that focused. <laughs> Do they I would, know anything about Mountain Meadows there? Um, they didn't know much about Mount, my advisors didn't know much about Mountain Meadows. They knew um, some Mormon history, some Latter-day Saint history. Um, and my um, advisor, George Lewis, um, has spent quite a bit of his career looking at civil rights history, but also looking at different marginalized groups, whether it be for, um, for racial, as a racial minority or a religious minority. Um, so he's done a lot of work on groups who have been considered un-American over time. And which so, Mormons were. Which Mormons definitely were. And so this was central um, to, uh, he, was, he was a great advisor and um, it was really... It was it was nice to kind of be away from all of the politics that are connected with Mountain Meadows. What you're a political I know, science person. I know person. this is surprising, <laughs> um, but it was good to be uh, somewhere very removed from it, um, and and also able. I'm not sure I would have finished a dissertation. I I, th- I think that it was a for me it was a blessing to kind of be removed from my life a little bit. And, um, I made lots of new, wonderful friends in England, but it was also good to be just very focused. I think I had been trying to work and do school at the same time and that was difficult. Mm-hmm. And, um, so it was really good for me to just be fully focused on now, this. Were you, were you actually in England or was it? Yeah, online? no, I was in England. Oh, I didn't realize. Yeah, no, oh, this wasn't I moved, no, no, I moved to England. Oh, wow. Yeah, so I was really able to to wholly focus. But on, all the documents are here. But I had already spent seven years working on the legal <laughs> papers, and so I had all all you those documents. Sweet. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, that's very cool. Now you, let me stop you just a second yeah. because uh, just yesterday I was talking to my son about Mountain Meadows, and he and he didn't know anything, and I'm sure. I just had a, a conversation with Christina Rossetti, and I was like, I didn't know I had Catholic listeners. So there are 
<laughs> Apparently, I have Catholic listeners um, that may not be familiar with Mountain Meadows. Can you just kind of give us a brief thumbnail sketch of what happened in 1857? Um, so September 11th, 1857, um, it has been building up to this over a week, but you have a Mormon militia, a white Mormon militia, and um, who have recruited, John D. Lee recruits Native American Paiutes, um, to help them attack this immigrant train from Arkansas. Um, it's, it's really two main family trains that have joined together. There are a couple additional errant people there. Um, and they have um, had some relatively minor, but skirmishes. It's 1857. The uh, army, the federal army, is marching on Utah and things are very tense, and there are some minor skirmishes on their way to the south, um, but things explode as, as they're in Cedar City, and then um, this Mormon militia with uh, Paiute Confederates attack this immigrant train and eventually kill everyone except for 17 children. Um, it is horrific um, in a very violent 19th century. Right. Um, we have a number of different massacres that will reach similar numbers in the 19th century. I've heard some disputed numbers. In fact, I think Barbara and Rick have kind of revised the number down. Yeah, they've, they've, uh, they have done a lot of genealogical work and they have um, put it down to 100. Yeah. Um, for my purposes, whether it's 100 or 120. Yeah, which is what it's, typically is It's reported. still a lot. Right. <laughs> um, and, and so I appreciate that they've been able to do that legwork and that research to give it, make that more specific. But it's a massacre by anyone's standards. Yeah. Um, we use massacre is kind of a difficult term because... It does. It's used so frequently. Whether it's six people in the Boston massacre, right. or seventeen people at Hans Mill, um, or hundreds of people, um, we use the same term, and so it begins to become. It's not particularly precise. Right. Um, but in the nineteenth century, we have a number of similar massacres. Usually, it's white militias massacring native peoples. Which I know the Bear River Massacre, I think you mentioned that in your book. Yeah. How many people died in that one, do you know? I think 250 is one of yeah. the approximations. Yeah, which is, I mean, even if you go out with 120, it's twice as bad as what happened in, in Mount Meadows. Yeah. And, and a lot of people don't count that. I remember at one point, I think one of my old interviews with either Barbara or Rick, I had said it was the worst massacre of its kind, which I guess is true. Bear River was six years later. <coughs> um, but a lot of times we completely ignore the Indian massacres, which were generally more people killed in those. Yeah. And you have the Sacramento River massacre. You have a white militia, which happens pre-Mountain Meadows. You have okay. a white militia attacking peaceful Wintu people on the banks of the Sacramento River These in California. Indians. Yes, and they are um, wiped out. You have uh, 
more more people than are killed at Mountain Meadows. But most of these attacks on Native peoples are initially labeled battles. Right. Even if, like the Wintu people, they're completely peaceful. Well, even with Bear River, it was referred to as the Bear River Battle until the 1960s right. or 70s, or the ba- I believe. Or the, the battle, yeah. We, we put this label of battles on them um, kind of to to shield the the aggression, the right. bear aggression there. Because only white people are massacred, Indians are battles. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's and that and so that's one of the difficulties. There is this narrative around Mountain Meadows that this is a wholly unique atrocity. Um, that it is the worst atrocity. You're gonna see that all throughout the legal papers that this is the worst atrocity, but it tells us something about what they're counting. Right. And they are not counting native people being massacred. Red lives don't matter. They, yeah. Um, and they they aren't counting. They, they kind of ex- seem to expect um, that white militias will wipe out native peoples or that native peoples will sometimes... Um, fight back. So we have uh, the Dakota War in Minnesota, and we have many, um, uh, n- many whites are killed on the Minnesota frontier um, in that in that time period. But some lots of people seem to, at least in the 19th century, that just seems part and parcel of the progress of civilization manifest destiny. Yeah, it is. It is. This is God ordained that we establish white civilization. And the, the white part of that is, is always inherent. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, and that leads us to, so my chapters are set up thematically. Um, every other mountain books has, have kind of proceeded in a strict narrative fashion. But I think that, trying to understand how Mountain Meadows really becomes this kind of multi-use tool, that whatever your problem is, Mountain Meadows can fit the narrative. And it's these different threads of savagery, um, of civilization, of gender and ideas about gender and manhood particularly, um, and theocracy. And, and freedom, um, how all of these different threads get wound together in this story of Mountain Meadows. So really, whatever your problem is, whatever your concern is, this fits your concern. This story can be used in a multitude of different ways. And so it becomes this really malleable thing. Um, the, the pop, as the popular narrative uh, expands, first it goes to Southern California and then up to, we have, I think, one report in Sacramento, but it really, uh, a fire is lit when it hits San Francisco and then it spreads to the east from San Francisco. And this is because the Arkansas immigrants were coming to California and when they didn't arrive, where are they? Yeah. Yeah, and and word of the, this massacre begin um, to take hold. Um, we have suggestions the Mormons are involved very early, uh, within the two weeks after the massacre, um, and very early it is used as this is 
uh, evidence of why the Mormons are such a problem. Um, this demonstrates to us that we need to do something about the Mormons. So you, and, and it's always intertwined with plural marriage, but it's almost as if they're saying, you may or may not care about the marital practices of Mormons, but you definitely care about when there's an actual physical threat. And so it heightens all of the, the polygamy arguments and expands in some other new ways to say, this is a real threat. We need to do something about the Mormons. Hmm. Very good. Well, uh, walk us through then. Um, you know, I will tell you this, and, and maybe you can just take it from there. As I started reading your book, it kind of struck me that um, your book was kind of like Paul Reeves in a way, where Paul, a lot of times with the race issue, Mormons, we look at it internally, and Paul tried to look at it from a non-Mormon point of view. And then I remember I got about halfway through your book, and then you're like, and like Paul Reeves says, <laughs> was that kind of purposeful to take Paul's approach and apply it to Mountain Meadows? Um, I think that there are a lot of similarities of um, Paul Reeve and also Spencer Fluman's book um, on uh, a peculiar people. Okay, um, I haven't read that one. Has has a lot. There there are similarities, but there are also some very intriguing differences that come out when you're just looking at Mountain Meadows. Mm -hmm. And so they, those were definitely starting with Terrell Givens, Viper on the Hearth book. Um, there have, and, and also Patrick Mason's important book on um, anti-Mormonism in the South, Mormon Menace. Mm -hmm. um, all of those books have very much looked at kind of outside perceptions of Mormonism. Paul's going to do the outside thing and the inside thing and how those two things work together. Um, but this also very much fits into that vein, but there are some really intriguing differences that come up with the Mountain Meadows narrative. Um, also, you could look at Chris Talbot's book, Forgotten Kingdom, um, uh, Sally Gordon's book, uh, the Mormon question, oh, that's a all book. of them. And, and Sally's has also has some similarities. Mine is not a legal history. Um, right. I am not a, a lawyer, but looking at this interdependent relationship between the prosecution for Mountain Meadows and the popular narrative that's being told about Mountain Meadows, because that relationship is always interdependent. The law is not this kind of pristine sphere in which, um, bias and prejudice and are, don't, you know, uh, pass through the, the, the Justice sphere. is not blind? Um, are you saying that? Surprise. <laughs> um, I, and maybe we're, we're more attuned to that now than, than we were earlier in the century. But the 19th century is certainly, 19th century courtroom is definitely, and courtrooms have never been a place uh, free of bias or prejudice or, um, and, and we see that in the 19th century. And I think there's a really intriguing relationship between what's going on politically and what's going on in this popular narrative of Mountain Meadows that is spinning and growing. 
Mm-hmm. Um, when John D. Lee finally comes to trial in 1875, his first trial is like the OJ trial in the mid nineties. It is. It's that big. It is that big. It is newspapers across the country and into Europe onto the continent and the UK. Um, you have reports on this trial, um, small towns, large cities. It is the the thing of the day. Um, oh, wow. You're going Interesting to have to compare it to OJ because, I mean, that at least people our age remember that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If um, yeah, I was I was at BYU when it. Um, Happened. I think that I maybe just came home from a mission, maybe, oh, wow. but, and it's because I hadn't been around for the white Bronco chase and all of that, but I was definitely, I was back when the trial happened. Wow. And, you know, people were watching it in the, um, in the Wilkinson Center, you know, <laughs> and, um, without, you know, of course, we don't have, ca- we didn't have cameras in the courtroom in 1875, but you had newspaper, uh, reporters from all across, across the country and and those newspaper reports in the 19th century, basically plagiarism would just thrived in newspapers. Uh, many newspapers would have uh, would have subscriptions to other newspapers and would just readily lift stuff and reprint it. And without so attribution. without attribution, sometimes attribution, not always mm-hmm. with attribution. Um, but this was standard practice for the 19th century. And so this, this popular narrative of Mountain Meadows had a long shelf life and, and it's, and it's continued. Um, polygamy was always the lightning rod. Polygamy always got the most attention, but I think the fact that Mountain Meadows was kind of in a, a second place actually enabled it to even endure longer Hmm. Um, because you get this kind of narrative like the Mormons don't want you to know about this. I had to sneak out this secret information. Like the number of times that story is told, it's it's repeated again Mm -hmm. and again because just enough people don't know about it as the decades progress that they can, that that narrative is perpetuated over time. Mm-hmm. Um, that this is this is the thing you need to know about the Mormons. Right. Um, it becomes a standard in um, that anti-polygamy books will have a chapter on Mountain Meadows. Um, C.V. Waite, who is the first anti-polygamy author to write uh, to include a chapter on Mountain Meadows, um, she titles her chapter. It's in Latin, Exuno Discmones which I'm sure my pronunciation is rubbish, but um, it essentially means from one we learn about the many. And the argument here is that Mountain Meadows tells you everything you need to know about the Mormons. So, you know, it is pretty surprising, I think, to most people. If the massacre occurred in 1857, John DeLee's first trial, which did not result in a conviction, 1875, that's 18 years, um... What, I mean, I guess the Civil War is in there, so that's kind of a big deal. But what took so long for justice to arrive? Well, <laughs> I'm not sure that justice arrived. It certainly <laughs> didn't arrive in 1875. Right. Um, and um, and I, I would probably argue it still hasn't right. fully arrived. 
Um, but that well, you've got a number of uh, one thing I think that becomes problematic when thinking about mountain meadows is it's often seen in a vacuum, right? And it's never just mountain meadows; it's all of these other things going on. And Utah and the Mormons are battling with the federal government um, during the Utah War, but those battles are going to continue for a really long time. We have a hiatus during the Civil War, um, and but it really picks up again. You had a, a federal judge in Springville in 1857, um, John Cradlebaugh, who wants to uh, convict and wants to indict Mountain Meadows people. So that's pretty right away. That's that's very soon, but his grand jury. Um, after two weeks, he th he dismisses them because he's mad they haven't moved fast enough. In two weeks. In two weeks, <laughs> and so um, he so he can now make this claim that they're not doing anything, but he didn't actually give them much time to do anything. Right. And um, and so and then we have the Civil War, but in 1871, um, uh, William uh, William. Philip Klingen Smith, who is, uh, who was a bishop, who was on the field of the massacres, the bishop in Cedar City, um, he was definitely involved in both the planning and the execution of the massacre. Um, unlike William Dame, who was behind the planning but wasn't actually there on, I'm sorry, Isaac Haight or William Dame. Well, both who, of those were stake presidents, Both right? of those are stake presidents, and they're also high-ranking members in the militia. Right. Um, so they're both stake presidents, but Isaac Haight is just below William Dame in the militia. Okay. Um, so those were probably the two highest officials involved? Yes, and yes. And they never... One of them, I think, was indicted and maybe even arrested, but no, they they're both trial. they're both indicted. Okay, um, they're both indicted, as is Klingen Smith, but Klingen Smith has left the church by this time. He's not uh, no longer a member of the church. He's living out in one of the mining towns in Pioche, Nevada, so just over the border. Um, one of these towns, Paul Reeves' earlier book writes about this actually. Oh. Predictably, they would be in the Utah in Utah territory, but when they're determining st lines, state lines, Nevada kept um, getting bigger and bigger. And there, bigger. Uh, there is mining in in Pioche, and um, and so there's this little jog that the the line the uh, the border takes. Um, the state Is that line part of the Colorado takes. River, I think that little jog you're talking about. No, it's not. It's not the Colorado River. Okay. Um, it was just to get these mining settlements in Nevada oh. rather than in Utah. Okay. So, but he's gone um, over there. His friend, um, uh, Wandell, um, who writes a number of things. Um, he has uh, Charles Wandell. He has. He convinces Klingen Smith to uh, testify and to write up an affidavit. Um, that affidavit comes in 1871, uh, and that's kind of the beginning. Um, Bates, who by the time we get to John D. Lee's first trial, is working for the defense, but he is a U.S. attorney at that time, 
And he writes, when he gets that affidavit, he is excited and he is ready to move forward, but it beca- it's much more difficult than he thinks it's going to be. And um, so he's very initially excited, but that affidavit is going to be published in the New York Times and the New York Herald. Um, and that's really going to be the beginning of um, what will lead to Mountain Meadows uh, uh, indictments in 1874. Okay. Oh, 74 is that late. Okay. Yeah. So, it's so we still take got a few 17 years. years that have passed before. This well, really so 18, so 1871 is when Klingon Smith gives his affidavit. Okay. And that really begins things again. Okay. Um, 18, September 1874 is when nine people are indicted. And then John D. Lee's trial is the next summer. But only two of those nine were actually arrested. Is that right? No, we have different people who are arrested over time. Okay. Um, Lee evades the federal marshals for a little while, um, but um, is found in uh, his home in Parowan hiding in a chicken coop. Uh-oh. Um, chicken. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure that Yeah, came. it was it got a lot of play. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a lot a lot of play. Um and but Isaac Haight goes on the run very quickly, as does John Higby and William Stewart. Um so Haight was the stake president um and um ranking member in the militia. I'm trying to remember what his I'm never good with the what their uh but what leader of what the his level, yeah, yeah, leader of the militia. Um, Higby is the sheriff in Cedar City, and he is the one on the massacre field who will give the order for the massacre. Halt, basically. Halt, yeah. yes. And um, But he and Hate are on the run, and William Stewart was known as one of the most vengeful, one of the most... Um, violent on the massacre field. They are on the run very quickly. Um, we do get Ellet Wilden and Georgia Dare. They both just are kind of regular militia members. It's kind of curious that they are indicted in the first place. Um, but they both later arrested. Um, uh, Wilden is going to spend some time in jail, as, as will Adair, but nothing ever comes of... Um, of their indictments. So, and then you have someone like Samuel Jukes, who's not at the massacre. He's not on the massacre field. He's a judge in Southern Utah, a territorial judge. And he takes in one of the orphan children after the massacre. And so some, that seems to be maybe a connection. Why, why he's indicted that they want to impugn his character as a judge but his only connection is taking in that child. Okay. Um, that's the only thing that connects him. And there is no effort to ever arrest him. Um, they don't, they just don't do anything with his indictment at all. Hmm. Um, but early on, so they've got Lee in custody. They've got Dame in custody. Um, Lee wants to turn state's evidence and gives a confession Um and they're thinking they're going to use that against William Dame. Um, but Lee doesn't give them enough to help them in the case against Dame, and they turn around and use it against him. He used Lee's own confession against well, him? Well, they, they turn around and start his trial. 
Okay. Now, the first trial is um, they don't actually have uh, any witnesses that have can testify to him murdering anyone. So that's a significant problem. Um, and there are lots of curious legal things going on. They in introduce one indictment in September of 1874, but they introduce a second right before the trial. Um, and there are lots of lots of weird things going on there. But we have to talk to Rick and Barbara about those issues. <laughs> well, those lo those are covered in detail in the the legal papers. But oh, that's okay. why the legal papers are two volumes, and <laughs> and then you have the trial transcripts, which are another three thousand pages on top of that. So. <laughs> So that, that could leave us talking all day. But um, for where this comes in um, to, to my book, when we get to trial, um, in, the, in opening arguments, they hint that they're going to get at the real person behind the case. Who is? Um, they never say. So you don't actually get that that really said until you get to the closing arguments. But all along the way, they've kind of been hinting that it's Brigham Young. That Brigham Young is the one who is behind all of this. Well, and even today, we have people who, who Will Bagley, for sure, I mean, yeah. I know he's passed away, but he was sure that nothing happened in the territory without Brigham Young's knowledge and approval. Yeah, I mean, one of, my, one of my responses there would be, then why does Brigham keep repeating himself? If people do everything he tells them to do, why does he have to say the same thing dozens of times? But anyway, that's, <laughs> that's not a, a complete defense there. But, but I think that um, the first trial, though most of the time they're talking about local leaders, but they leave it ambiguous enough that the press takes it and runs with it. And the most enduring thing that they achieved with the first trial was creating this fiction that Brigham Young ordered the massacre. And that's going to stick to present day. Mm -hmm. um, it, in the two years between when the first trial ends in 1875 and eight, August of 1877, so it's just two years um, when Brigham Young dies, the narrative has shifted completely. Um, half of all of his obituaries call him, um, say that he ordered the Mountain Meadows Massacre. This becomes oh, wow. a central part. And so in those two years, that narrative completely shifts, even though... Because of the first trial? Beca because of the first trial and the way that they shaped the first trial... It was really. It was never about Lee. It was about uh, Mormonism in general and Brigham Young specifically. So it Though, wasn't Lee on trial. It was the Mormon Church on trial. Lee Lee sits is sitting there at the bar the whole time, but they're they've pretty much forgotten that mm -hmm. that he's the one on trial, and um, and and you have these different threads of kind of. Uh, accusations of Mormon savagery, uh, questions about Mormon whiteness. Are Mormons white? <laughs> that sounds like Paul Reeve. Yeah, well, and that's that's one of those questions. Um, Spencer Fluman talks about the vexed whiteness of the Mormons, and but curiously, in a different way than it plays out, than Paul's work plays out, 
in the trials and in a lot of this popular narrative that's written about Mountain Meadows, it is that Mormons look white. This is the problem. <laughs> it's not that Mormons look like um, all these other people of color or Blacks, different Chinese, ethnicities, yeah. you know, but but that Mormons look American. They look white, and it's this duplicity that is the problem. I mean, I think we still have some threads of that um, Mormon niceness. Um, Katie Lofton at the Mormon History Association last year talked about the Mormon smile, right. that, that there is this duplicity, um, that there is the Mormon smile shields something dangerous sinister. behind, something sinister. And that definitely plays out. So William Mormons just can't be trusted. Yeah. No. They they look white, they look American, but we can't trust them. And that therefore they're more dangerous than those people who signal to us with their dark skin that they can't be trusted. That they can't be trusted. <laughs> I mean, this is and and you know, these ideas about race and they're all historically constructed. They're slippery. These ideals, you can't quite, you can never quite pin them down. And if you're in a, a minority religion or a minority, um, you have minority racial heritage, or you come from, you know, whether it, you're Italian or you're Irish and you haven't quite gained whiteness yet, um, these are really, you can do everything to act like you're white and people are still not going to think you're white. And with Mormonism, there is this duplicity. Um, William Carey, who is the U.S. attorney, um, as he is arguing this case, he starts out and he talks about um, the, the company that comes when Lee leads the company to meet with the immigrants under the presumption that, we, that they come with a white flag Obtruse. and um, we're, we're going to give you a truce, we're going to save you from the Indians, is, is their narrative. Now, when Carrie um, talks about this to in, in the courtroom, he talks about the white flag, but he also says that they have an American flag that this American flag, the stars and stripes, show that they are a place of refuge. It shows that they're American. And then they kill them all. Um, now, there isn't any account that uses an American flag, but this it becomes key in their strategy. And they don't have an American flag on the field. They have a white flag. White flags have kind of more... Uh, are more transferable over cultures than, than, than an American flag is. But, but it tells us something about their strategy. They're trying to show the duplicity of not just the perpetrators of the massacre, but of all Mormons, that, that there is um, this treachery. Um, and uh, that is is consistent throughout the trial, that hmm. it's not just John D. Lee. So you're saying up to the first trial, there wasn't a consensus on whether Brigham was involved, but after that first trial, because the prosecution 
against John Dee Lee was really trying to prosecute Brigham Young, the narrative changed at that point, and then Brigham was, of course, guilty. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. interesting. It's it is, it is very stark. You have um, one person, one uh, the Indian agent Garland Hurt in 1859, who says Brigham Young might be involved. He makes that suggestion, but nothing ever comes of it because he doesn't actually have that evidence. You have Brigham Young being worried he's going to be arrested in 1859. Right. But that never comes to fruition. For Mountain Meadows. For Mountain Meadows. Yeah, for he Mountain Meadows. He was arrested Meadows. for polygamy and other right, things. Right, right. For Mountain Meadows. Um, and so you get it's it is just, it is brought up a couple of times, but nothing happens with it because they don't have the evidence. And even Robert Baskin, who is the one who is kind of the mastermind behold, be, behind this whole argument at Mountain Meadows, um, is later going to say, yeah, we never had that evidence. <laughs> you know, and But that, that is their stop from most enduring success is that they shift the narrative hmm. and that Brigham Young is... Um, ordered the massacre. And he actually, Baskin, when he's arguing it, he uses an argument that's made in um, C.V. Waite's anti-polygamy book, The Mormon Prophet and His Harem, which she makes up these priesthood offices, and Brigham Young is supposed to be the great grand archie or something. It's, it's fascinating. It seems to be some sort of mix of like maybe Masonic Office Masonic offices in like maybe Ku Klux Klan, early Ku oh, Klux really? Klan positions. It's anyway, he, she's made up this hierarchy, this supposed Mormon priesthood hierarchy. And Brigham Young is this grand archie, and he gets this revelation that this company needs to be killed. Um, that's the first time the idea that a revelation was it the genesis of this this massacre? What year is this that this 1866. book came out? 1866. Oh, okay. Um, Baskin uses that in the trial hmm. and makes this argument that, jo that Brigham Young received a revelation. So they've been trying to pin it on Brigham for a long time. Oh, yeah, yeah. And still and, are. Yeah, and it's... Um, but, but And that shows some of the interdependence. Sometimes something will come up, a witness will say something in the testimony, and then you'll see it proliferate in popular sources. Um, in that instance, it was something that was created, that was crafted in this anti-polygamy book, and it comes into the trial. So there's this interdependence, hmm. um, this interdependent relationship between the popular narrative, but it shows us these places where Americans or um, Americans are worried about civilization's boundaries, where they want to do boundary maintenance. So before the massacre, um, Mormons have always had a questionable relationship with Indians, um, uh, this kind of caricature of native peoples since the Book of Mormon was published in 1830. Um, but you see it play out here, um, this, this presumed alliance between, and, you know, Brigham Young really wants an alliance 
With the Indians. With the Indians. But most of the native leaders say, yeah, we're going to let you fight it out, and then we'll... We'll decide who we want to deal with. Yeah, we'll take go with the winner. And, and there is there is never as much an as alliance as this perception. And so before the massacre, Mormons are savage like the Indians. After the massacre, Mormons are more savage than the Indians. They're hyper savage. I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Dr. Janice Johnson. In our next conversation, we're going to talk a little bit about the trials of John D. Lee and the execution. After Lee's execution, um, so Frank Leslie's Illustrated magazine does a whole special supplemental issue that is just on Lee's execution. And they have all of these engravings which are done, which are based on some of the photographs. They can't yet replicate photographs in newspapers, so they have to do engravings. But you have, like, live-action shots. You have Lee falling back into his, his, into his coffin and bullets coming, right. you know, at him. If you'd like to hear the entire interview uncut, you can hear the audio only at patreon.com slash gospeltangents. For just $5 a month, you can hear the entire interview with no interruptions. If you want to watch the entire video for just $8 a month, you can also sign up at Patreon or on YouTube.com slash Gospel Tangents and just subscribe here. You can watch the entire video uncut before everybody else. Also, if you'd like to continue to support Gospel Tangents, you can either sign up for our $10 or $20 memberships, or you can get some cool gear like this hat. Um, I've got the coffee mugs like this here. Uh, we've got sweatshirts and t-shirts and I'm even thinking about ties. Somebody said they wanted a tie. So I'll see if I can get that on my store. So go to gospeltangents.com store and you can get some Gospel Tangents gear. So you don't want to miss that. So anyway, thanks for listening. If you'd like to check out some of our other videos, check out here.